In episode 459 with Luca McCabe from Boob to Food, we are talking about everything you need to know in regards to introducing solids to your babies. We talk about allergens, purees, baby led weaning, and everything in between. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide and Comparisonitis. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Hey, beautiful, and welcome back to the show. I am so excited about this episode because this is basically your one-stop shop for everything you need to know about introducing food to your babe. We talk about when, how, supplements, allergens, purees, baby led weaning. We cover what to do if you're plant-based, what to do if you're not plant-based, and so much more. This is your one-stop shop for everything introducing solids to your babes. And for those of you that have never heard of Luca, she is the co-author of the popular book, Milk to Meals, and the face behind the popular Instagram, Boob to Food. She is also a midwife, registered nurse, certified nutrition consultant, parenting educator, and mama of three. And for everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 459. Now let's dive in. Beautiful Luca, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? Hello. Thank you for having me. I had oats porridge with lots of goodies added into it (laughs) to share with the kids. Oh, yum, yum. What are some of the goodies you added? We put in our porridge egg yolk, peanut butter, collagen powder, hemp seeds, grass-fed butter, cinnamon, and I think that's all. And we cook it with coconut milk. Mm, Okay. And so how many kids do you have? I have three. Oh my goodness. Can you share how old they all are? Yeah, my son is, oldest son is Flynn. He is nearly seven. My middle is my daughter Florence. She just turned four. And my son Will, who I think is the same age as your little one, he's just turned 11 months. Are they a similar age? Very similar age. Oh my goodness. That is so beautiful. Wow, babe. Wow. Three kitties. That is amazing. So, I first discovered you because I saw your book on one of my friend's kitchen countertops and this was before I had a baby and I was just flicking through it and wow, firstly, the imagery is absolutely beautiful and you've done such an amazing job. Tell me how you got into this. How did boob to food, milk to meals all start for you? Well, I was working as a midwife the local hospital and I had my firstborn and then went on maternity leave with him and I've always been a little bit interested in nutrition but then once he was ready to start solids I was like had absolutely no idea what to do where to start and I went to a local 
a little information mother's group. It was sort of four sessions at my local naturopath and one of them was on nutrition for babies and a lot of the stuff was kind of what I talk about now, just very different to the advice that was given from the GP and the health nurse and it just really resonated me way more than what they were telling me. So, you know, your typical advice of starting, well, they both told me to start at four months and I just instinctively knew that my child was absolutely not ready at that age and that, you know, to start on rice cereal with the fortified iron and that just didn't sit right with me because, you know, we can delve into that a bit later if you want, but um, I just didn't see the point of starting here with something fortified with iron when I could achieve that through just natural foods and whole foods. and so. We went to the that information course and, yeah, they were talking about whole foods starting with, you know, just lots of real foods and it really resonated with me and so I sort of went down my own path of learning and I guess Instagram was sort of a bit of a thing then but not as much as it is now and sort of found a few other people that resonated with me. One of them was called O Baby Nutrition and I, I guess, sort of just experimented with my own child doing different sort of things to what was normally recommended and so and then I started getting a lot of questions and a lot of questions about what I was feeding him and why wasn't I feeding him certain foods and why I was feeding certain foods and I found that there was a lot of interest in it and so then when I had my second child I went back to midwifery sorry in between and also was very interested in wanting to advocate for pregnant women and postpartum women and eating better and the advice that was given and is still currently given is not great. <laughs> so I really was interested in that realm as well. Then when I had my, my second born, I started Boop to Food as a Instagram account and as a way of, I guess, promoting different foods and promoting education and advice as to why you might chose to provide your baby with certain foods rather than other foods. And very evidence-based and information I'm really passionate about always backing up advice with information and so then I went down the track of actually studying and becoming a certified nutrition consultant with O Baby Academy who co-wrote the book with me as well so we went I studied with them studied pregnancy postpartum and baby nutrition and then Boop to Food just really took off um, way more than I ever expected it to and then yeah we wrote a book together which is about starting solids and the recipes and things to back that up because I felt there was a really big gap in the market there for a book that incorporated not only advice but also how to actually do that and how to actually feed your baby and just really I wanted to make it really simple step by step very information based but not too information based and yeah, I just found there was a lot of like baby low weaning books or puree books, but there wasn't actually like why should you feed your baby certain foods? And so that's my passion, I guess, in a nutshell. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I know for me personally, I was so confused when it came the time to introduce foods to Bambi. I was like, where do I begin? Do I do purees? Do I do baby led weaning? How much? when, timing, what, like, you know, I was listening to my intuition, but also I wanted some information. Like so many books say start at four months. Then there is so many that say don't. And, you know, like with 
everything. There is a for and against for almost everything. There is a back and a front to everything. And so for me, I thought the same as you, four months is way too early. And I know that you need to look for signs like, are they sitting up, neck control? Are they reaching for your food? Are they smacking their lips and all sorts of things like that? But at four months, there was no way that she was ready. At five months, the same, six months. So we actually did over seven months. And I probably would have maybe even gone to eight months. But that's because she was showing absolutely no signs of being interested in food. She wasn't reaching for my food. She wasn't smacking her lips. Yes, she was sitting up and she had that neck control and that trunk control. But intuitively, when I got to seven months, I was like, oh, I don't know. I feel like I should, quote unquote, should start now because most of the books say six months. But intuitively, I was like, oh, it just doesn't feel quite the time. So we waited a bit longer, but you know, I probably would have waited till eight months. But what is your thoughts? What age do you feel is best to introduce foods to babies? I think the best thing that we can do is try not to focus on an age per se, but like you said, look for the signs of readiness because like everything babies do, they do at different stages. And some will walk at nine months, some will walk at 15 months, some will talk at, you know, one and some will talk at three. They're all so different. And so starting solids is just another one of those things that, that, like you said, you know, they're not already at a certain age. And some babies will start at six months, but they really won't start even in ingesting any food until 10, 11 months, which is so normal. And then the added stress that it causes when you think, oh, my baby should be eating, you know, all of this food by this age is just not great for everybody. So definitely not four months. I think that I'm yet to meet a baby who's met all of the signs at four months. I know people do, and this isn't to cast any judgment. We only know what we can know and do with the information that we have. And so that's why I'm quite passionate about hopefully putting more evidence-based information out there. But the guidelines were changed quite a few years ago now to start solids around six months and the reason they say six months is that's when most babies have met the signs of readiness and so some babies it may be more towards that seven months some might be around the five and a half months they're all different but the signs of readiness are like you said the biggest one is having that head and neck support and that trunk support there's a few reasons that that one's really important the biggest thing is that that's a really good indicator that their digestive system is actually ready to digest food. If they've got that core support, that chunk support, then that means hopefully all of those muscle that needs to actually digest foods will be working efficiently. So the bowels need to do something. The intestine is called peristalsis where it moves that food through the actual body and so that they don't get clogged up and constipated. And so having that core support generally means that those muscles are working pretty well. The other really important thing, especially if you're going to go down the baby led weaning path, which is the finger foods path, is that they need to have good head support because otherwise it's a bit of a choking risk if they've got a floppy neck and they're flopping forward all of the time. They don't have to be completely sitting unassisted. Some babies won't sit unassisted for, you know, until that eight month mark, especially premature babies, which we're getting more and more and more of now as well as, you know, technology is amazing and supporting these little ones. But they, you know, will meet those signs a little bit later, which is why it's good to not look at an age as well. But basically what you want is if you were to put them in a high chair, that they'd be able to sit in that high chair 
they would be able to reach for foods and they would be able to sit themselves up in a high chair with that tiny bit of support a high chair would provide, not cushions or a bumbo or anything else that's really propping them up. So that's kind of the biggest sign that you want to look for. Interest in food is, a, is another one. And this is one that stumps a lot of people because a lot of babies are really interested in food from four months. But I try and remind everyone they're interested in everything at four months. They are grabbing everything at four months. That's something that I hear a lot of because they say, my baby's just reaching for food all the time off my plate. And I'm like, yes, but they're reaching for everything. (laughs) They're curious about everything. So, you know, just be mindful that they will probably reach for everything. Yeah, that's right. And they don't know what's food and what's not. And so it's amazing to, you know, if you've got a baby that's really interested, still put them at the dinner table with you while you're eating, eat in front of them, do all of those things, give them a spoon to play with, or even what's called a hard munchable, which is a food that you don't actually intend for them to eat, but that they can sort of play with and munch around on, which can really help to teach them sort of some skills around how much food to put in their mouth, how far back to put it in, teach them some chewing skills before you even start solid. So that might be like a celery stick, for example, or a whole raw carrot. You're obviously very much watching them. You're, it's not designed to be a choking risk. They're not able to eat these foods. They're very big, large ones. A watermelon rind, for example, if you eat meat, bones from the meat so you're not actually they're just sort of chewing on them but you can also do that with a toothbrush or a spoon or something like that if you feel comfortable with with large foods but yeah they're really big ones to look for and the other ones are sort of you want your baby and a lot of babies can do this by the four month mark as well but you want your baby to be able to tell you when they've had enough and when they want more and obviously they can't speak to you but they can say it in their own way. And the way that you can test this out is when you're breast or bottle feeding, if they have the ability to pull off of the breast when they've had enough and then sort of reach for more when they want more and same with the bottle, then that's a good indicator that they can also do that with food. And that's really important when it comes to how much food to give them, that they can give you those indication and those signs that you can communicate with them in that way. So they're the biggest things to look for. That's a really good point. Like I didn't think about that with coming off the boob and then going back on the boob. Like that's a really great thing to look out for. And like with everything with parenting, and I've said this so many times on the show before, trust your intuition. I know for me, being a first time mom, I really lost touch with my intuition at the start because I was reading all of these books and interviewing amazing experts and listening to so many people that I stopped listening to my intuition. And then it wasn't until my husband was like, babe, but what do you think? Like you are the most in tune with Bambi out of anyone. What do you think? And it was this big reminder for me to just trust my intuition and not listen to everything out there. There is so much out there. There's so much information There's so many for and against for everything when it comes to parenting and every area of our life. So just remember to trust your intuition and you will know, like tune into your baby. You will know when they are ready. And whether that is at six months or seven months or eight months, whenever it is, you will know. So I just want to reiterate how important it is to trust your intuition. And yes, look for the signs, but trust your intuition, mama. Oh, for sure. And it's sad 
it's one of the big things that I see these days as well, especially being a midwife and seeing it through pregnancy is that, and I hope I never contribute this to this, but, you know, it's hard not to, but there's so much information, like you said, out there and it can be really overwhelming. And I think as well as trusting your intuition, it's also trusting who you want to listen to in the space because there is research and pros and cons for everything. You can find research to back anything these days, whether it's good research or not and whether you know how to read the research or not. But you can find any claim that you want to make, you can find something and some way to back it up. And so (laughs) you have to do what's right for you and your family and what feels right for you and your family. I completely agree. And you will know when your baby is ready. And as long as you remember, don't feed them before four months. because that can be quite detrimental to their gut health and developing and you really, really don't want to displace any breast milk or formula nutrients before that age, then you're not going to mess anything up. However, in saying that, back in the like, I think 1900s, I think it was, they used to feed babies at like six weeks solids and they'd start them on orange juice and people survived. So, you know, you're probably not going to screw your baby up. <laughs> You'll be fine. They're pretty robust. But you like I sort of touched on before, a baby that's not ready for solids, they'll show you signs as well. And it's okay to realize that oh, I might have started too early and it's okay to stop. You don't have to keep going every day if you don't think that they're ready. So I get a lot of people who say they started at four months and their baby's constantly constipated or they're really upset and have a lot of gas and digestive pain and things. And I say they're probably not ready. Go back to breast milk or formula, however you are feeding your baby, and you know restart when you think they're ready. That's fine to do that as well. Not that you want to sort of test it out, but if, if anyone's listening to this and thinking, ah, my baby's four months and I've already started, that's good to remember as well. Breast milk or formula is their primary source of nutrition until at least 12 months old. Food is a secondary thing. And whilst it's important, it's not as important as their milk source. So, yeah, good to remember that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I heard a saying, food is for fun until one. Yes. And I have a love-hate relationship with that saying. But <laughs> Yeah. Tell me why you have a love-hate relationship with it and then I'll share why I do. I love it in that it, it provides a relaxed meal time and that it takes the pressure off food and that for a lot of babies who don't want to eat before 12 months, which a lot of babies aren't overly interested, it does take some of that pressure off. But I don't love it because some people could interpret that to mean they can feed their baby anything, which I don't agree with. <laughs> and there's also, apart from nutrients and you know, what food does for our body. There's a lot to say with setting them up with good healthy habits for the future, especially coming into toddlerhood in terms of things like learning texture and colours and smells and family meal times and all of these other things that come into play with food. It should be fun in that regard and relaxed. But yeah, I guess that's where I'm coming from. (laughs) Was your thoughts the same? Yeah, definitely. And also... I like the idea of fun, but what is your definition of fun? Is fun throwing food around the room? Like what is fun? Like is fun exploration in their high chair? Like you said, touching the different textures and flavors and colors. Is that fun? Or is it like 
go for it and, and you know, throw it everywhere and, and experiment. So what is fun? Like, what does that mean? Because I'm the same as you. I believe in instilling these healthy habits from day one. So with us, mealtimes are very sacred. We have a candle that we light. We have a gratitude prayer that we do. We say what we're grateful for. She sits at the high chair. There's routine. There's ritual to it. We don't eat on the run because I don't do that. I don't think that's good for us to do. I'm not feeding her, running around after her, feeding her around the house. I'm not shoving food in her face as we're driving. You know, I truly believe in setting them up with these really healthy, beautiful habits that we would like to instill. So I think just getting clear on, you know, what is your definition of fun and coming back to what are the routines and the rituals that you want to instill around food and mealtime with your children that you want to carry through because it starts at day one. And I know that there is people out there that chase their babies around with food. And I just think about me, would I want someone to do that to me? <laughs> and and I know some people might have to do that, but you know, from day one, we've always made it quite a sacred and special, almost like a celebration. And she knows that when she sits in her high chair, that's when she has food. She doesn't ask for food any other time. She knows that that's when her food is. So yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot to say about family mealtimes. It's something that I'm really passionate about. And I did that as a child. And now we do that as a family as well. We always eat as a family together. And it surprised me going through motherhood, how many people don't do that. (laughs) I just thought it was something that everybody does. And so it's something that I'm now quite passionate about having toddlers and older children who are in that different phase of eating that having that family meal time is just really important to all sit down together, you know, whether, and a lot of families can't do this for every meal or even for one meal, but even if you can focus on starting one day a week to all sit down together, you know, on the weekend or something like that. Or I do usually encourage whatever caregiver is the one at home with the children to eat with the children. And, you know, if that means that the partner comes home later from work, they can eat on their own because they know how to eat. Or you can sit back at the table with them. (laughs) But sitting with the children is really important rather than giving them a separate meal at a separate table at a separate time because that's teaching them that children eat different meals to what adults eat and different things to what adults do. And so... I agree, like having that ritual of of family meals is so important. And my biggest tip for anyone whose baby is not interested in solids is to eat with them. That's the best way that they're going to learn. They, They learn to walk by watching us. They learn to talk by listening to us and watching our mouth. They learn to do everything from us. Everything that we do, they mimic. They wave. They say, you know, they everything. And so... How can we expect them to eat if they never actually catch the opportunity to watch people eat? A lot of people, and I fully get it, put their baby to nap and then they'll have lunch or eat breakfast while they're having their morning nap. And I completely get wanting to have that downtime and rest time and enjoy your own meal. But the time will come that you can, I guess, do that again and maybe take that time for your rest time to do something else or just have a cup of tea or something. But 
yeah, trying to really hone in on, on eating together is just, you know, and really if your baby's not interested in eating, doing things like really emphasizing your chewing motions and really showing them and talking to them about the food and the colors and the textures and things that you're seeing in the meal. Even though they're a baby, they still are picking up on all of these things and it's great things to install for toddlerhood and then for for older children as well. And it's something that I still do with my older children as well as we talk about the meal and we talk about the the things that the meal is doing for us and what it's doing for our body and et cetera. And so, yeah, I have found it really helpful for, for my children and we see really, really great results when we encourage this sort of way of living, I guess it is. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, if you can't do it every day, that's totally fine. Just start with maybe one meal a week on the weekend or whenever you can, or one meal a day. Like if you can just do dinner, then great, do dinner. Or if you do breakfast, do breakfast. But just committing to at least one meal a week where you all sit together and share that time, just start there. That's a really beautiful thing to do. And I didn't actually even know that I was doing this, but uh, my mum was here the other day and she said, it's really beautiful that you explain to Bambi everything that she's eating. And I was like, oh, oh yeah, I do do that. So she sits down and we do a blessing and then I'll tell her what's on her plate. So I'm like, you've got some avocado and then you've got some sweet potato and then you've got steamed broccoli and you've got some quinoa or whatever it is. And I explain everything. And the same as you, I talk about the food. I'm like, so this is protein. This is healthy fats. So the avocado is really great healthy fats. You've got some healthy carbs and the sweet potato. So I explain everything. And I didn't actually even know I was doing it. Well, I did, but it wasn't brought to my attention until my mom said, that's really beautiful that you do that. And even I make her a smoothie which I'm still giving her with a spoon because she hasn't quite got, and you might be able to give me some tips on this, but she hasn't quite got the sucking of the straw sensation yet. She's still little. Um, So I make a beautiful smoothie for her and I'll tell her everything that's in it. So I'm like, there's spirulina in here and there's wild organic blueberries and banana. And I tell her everything, flax and chia and all of these amazing things. And you know, I could easily just pop that down in front of her and then start giving it to her, but I explain everything to her. And it's such a beautiful thing to do with your kids and your babies. And like you said, they know they'll start to pick it up. They'll, you know, that's programming avocado, healthy fats, sweet potato, healthy carbs, you know, like it's programming them. So it's a really beautiful thing that you can start to do. And it also, when they get older, it's a great topic of conversation. You know, your kid might then say, oh, okay, so what are some other healthy carbs or what are some other healthy fats? You know, it can go anywhere from there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like you're doing a great job. (laughs) Thank you. Talk to me about the difference between purees and baby-led weaning. And I have some thoughts on this. Okay. So my thought was how on earth Are we meant to do baby led weaning when they don't even have any teeth and digestion starts in the mouth and we have to chew, right? We have to chew. That's where our digestion starts. And in Ayurveda, they talk about if we don't chew our food, it causes armor in the body, which is like undigested food particles, which is not good. We don't want that in our stomach and that can cause SIBO and candida and all sorts of things. So how are we meant to 
get them to properly chew their food because there's quinoa coming out totally not chewed, you know. <laughs> there was sweet potato coming out not chewed. So talk to me about how that is good for them if they don't have any teeth. And the other thought I had was their digestive systems are so immature. They are brand new digestive systems. They are sensitive. Shouldn't we be giving them purees to warm up their digestive system, to support them, to help them until they get all of the teeth to then be able to chew? Yeah, well, it's a good point. <laughs> I'm actually not a baby led weanist purist, <laughs> and I'm not a puree purist either. I think there's a really good way you can come in the middle. So I guess I'll explain the two of them first and then I can answer your questions in case anyone has no idea what it is. But baby led weaning is essentially a fancy word for finger foods. And a purist would mean the belief that they would never have puree. And there's some very well-known books out there and things that sort of started this trend. And you can join these baby led weaning Facebook groups that would absolutely ban a spoon or the thought of a spoon and you you only do finger foods. So there's very much that way. There's also puree, which is pretty self-explanatory, which is when you puree up food and you spoon feed your baby. Both have pros and cons, to be honest, and that's why I think that both can fit in the space. And so basically in a fancy term, you would call it combination feeding, so doing a combination of both. But for me, I think the, the biggest thing that you need to do is to, to choose a method that you feel comfortable with because if you're striving to do finger foods but you feel completely anxious about the, you know your baby choking, for example, and if that's causing so much anxiety at mealtime, if you're hovering around your baby, if you're whacking them on the back every time they have a mouthful of food, if you're sticking your fingers in their throat every time they make a gag, that's not going to set up good relaxed meal times or happy meal times for your baby. And if you can imagine if you every time you ate someone whacked you on the back or stuck their fingers down your throat, you wouldn't want to eat the food either. So if you're that type of personality type, then I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with starting on purees because that's going to set you up for a more relaxed meal time and a happier meal time. However, like I said, there's pros and cons to both. And so with purees, the pros would be, yes, the food's generally better digested because it is already broken down to a, quite a degree. You know, it's, it's very well cooked generally. It's generally mush and then you're feeding them with the spoon. The risk of choking is virtually none with puree. There is a thing called aspiration, which is when it goes sort of down that wrong hole into the lungs, but that's a different story. But choking, you wouldn't choke on a puree unless it was lumpy. So a smooth puree can be very relaxing for a lot of people. Also can get a lot more nutrients into a baby with puree, generally speaking, unless you have a very good eater. Because a puree, you know, you can mix up things that, say, for example, you were feeding your baby meat. Meat's quite a hard food to chew and actually get a lot of the food down. And so if you can puree up the meat, they would actually get a lot more of those nutrients like the iron that you're trying to give them. So... There are benefits to puree, absolutely, but there are some downfalls as well. One of the ones, that, and really, to be honest, most of these downfalls are through extended feeding of puree. So one of them would be that they don't learn different textures of foods. They don't really learn different colors. Everything kind of looks the same. 
smells the same and it often ends up tasting pretty similar as well. And so they're not learning about food as a whole. The other thing that they're not learning is about chewing is about developing that gag reflex. So the more they gag, which can be scary to watch, but the more they do it, the quicker they sort of learn how to not do it. And that acts as a preventative against choking. And so there's actually quite a lot of emerging research to show that extended feeding of purees actually increases the risk of choking as they get older. Because when they're a baby, there's actually a lot of protective mechanisms against choking with the way that they do swallow food and with the epiglottis opening and closing. And so um, there's that research is kind of emerging, which is exciting to see. But in terms of, I guess, to avoid that, my biggest tip would be to try and move on to finger foods by around that eight-month mark, eight to nine months. And whether that be just starting to, you know, explore some finger foods every now and then, the ones you feel really comfortable with, like really ripe avocado or really ripe sweet potato and, you know, gradually moving up as you get more comfortable with foods. Or if you can try and incorporate at least some finger foods by eight months and hopefully by nine months sort of move away from the purees as much as you can, that should sort of reduce that risk of the downfalls of puree where they don't get introduced to those flavors and textures and things because after that nine-month mark, they do start to get a little bit fussy with textures and, you know, touching foods and things like that. It's not something that you can't come back from, but it can be harder to introduce them if you leave it much longer than that. So that would be my only tip there. One of the other downfalls of spoon feeding is that you can run that risk of overfeeding them and not listening to their cues. And so that's where it comes a lot about your relationship and your bond with your baby and learning to listen to their signs. And so I don't know about you, but we often, a lot of us grew up with the generation of the here comes the aeroplane, the spoon feeding and, you know, one more mouthful, have one more mouthful and you can have dessert, you know, that type of mentality. But that's a mentality we really want to move away from and get them to learn to trust their own fullness cues and their own hunger cues and so that's really important to teach from a young age and the benefit of baby led weaning is that they can't be overfed it's like a breastfed baby you can't overfeed one because they're in complete control of what they're having and their intake whereas spoon feeding it doesn't mean you're going to do it but there's definitely more of a risk so it's just being really mindful when you are offering the spoon to look for those signs, like if they're turning their head away from the spoon, for example, you know, continuously, or if they're spitting out the food continuously, or if they're crying or upset, um, or if they're pursing their lips, then just respect that. And it can be hard for a lot of people because a lot of baby starting solids don't actually eat very much food. And so we can see those jars of food, you know, at the, at the supermarket and think they're meant to eat that whole amount, whereas in reality they might eat one teaspoon of food and that's all that they wanted at the beginning. So there's learning that. And then with finger foods, again, there's pros and cons. So the pros are, like I said, they're in complete control of what they're eating. They are learning about textures and colours and everything that food encompasses. They're learning to chew and swallow and their gag reflex, everything that I talked about before. There are some cons to it though. Like I said, it can be anxiety causing for some parents. The other one can be that some babies do show up as more iron deficient because they aren't actually eating as much food. And so 
Again, that's not to say that these things are going to happen. They're just things to be mindful of when you're choosing, you know, one or the other path. So that's why I think that there can be a place for everything. And it's like us as adults, like we eat soup and things like that. And then we also eat finger foods. Like we don't just eat one way. And so I don't quite know why it came out that they have to eat just one way. You don't have to choose one path and make this big decision. You can just do what feels comfortable for you. And so with two of my children, I started on purees. My son was on purees for a couple of months and then gradually I did that, just started increasing finger foods more and more and more and then gradually weaned off of the purees as he got more confident with the finger foods. My daughter, my middle child, I started on puree and then by day three she refused all puree and to be spoon-fed and it's just a sign of her personality now is that you cannot do anything for that girl. <laughs> she is Miss Independent and, yeah, there's no point even trying. So that's her. <laughs> and then my my third baby, I started him on finger foods. We still do some puree, but to be honest, third time mum, finger foods was easier than me sitting there and, and spoon feeding him. I just don't have the time <laughs> to, to do it. I want to eat my meal. I've got to deal with the other kids. And so for him just to be able to sort himself out, like that just suited the baby. <laughs> In terms of what you were talking about with the chewing, I guess there could be a couple of arguments with that. I don't know if you've ever been bitten on the nipple with a baby with no teeth, but it still hurts a lot because those teeth are still underneath those gums. Um, And so they do have the ability to chew quite a lot more than we think that they would. You know, I remember my daughter like gnawing on a chicken drumstick and chewing it very well and she didn't get teeth until she was 13 months old. And so... They, they do still have that ability, um, even though it can be hard for us to see otherwise because the teeth are underneath the gums. The other, I guess, argument with that could be that purees are, I guess, a bit of a, not new age, but like they wouldn't have been able to puree food really back in. I always like to go back to how are we designed? How did we evolve? You know, well, how did we, where did we come from and how did we used to eat and things like that and we you know there's definitely pros to things that we have made think of the word inventions you know inventions like puree machines and things like that and blenders and food processes but how did we used to do that and so I guess one of the ways that, that a lot of mums used to do it would be called pre-mastification of food where they'd chew the food and give it to the baby like a little bird and so that's another way that you could do things as well if you felt more comfortable with doing it but I think, like you said, puree can be amazing. But I think one of the things that we lack, like you said, is a lot of people don't do things like really long, slow cooks anymore and really properly preparing grains with that long cooking time. So they are that like more mushy, you know, soaked grains and things like that. And so back then when we wouldn't have had blenders and things like that, the foods were cooked for a lot longer time and slow cooked and broths and things like that that were that easier to digest. But now we're in that kind of fast lane and, you know, trying to get everything ready really quick and we have all these beautiful convenience foods, which is amazing, but they do lack that long cooking time. And so I guess that can be a lot of the reason too why food isn't digested that well because it's not prepared that well, which takes time. (laughs) Does that hopefully answer your question? Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. And we did a mix for Bambi purees and baby led weaning. And my intuition was definitely more on the puree side. And I actually felt a little bit judged 
from other people that I wasn't doing baby led weaning. And so I started doing it and she had a few incidents of choking and one really scary one where Nick had to turn her upside down and belt her on the back pretty much. And it was very scary. Then that happened two other times. However, and he had to, you know, belt her on the back again. And that is very stressful and very scary. And I do want to say though, there is a big difference, guys, between choking and gagging. And I didn't know this. So two of those times we were mistaking her gagging for what we thought was choking and she wasn't actually choking. And so, you know, we tipped her upside down and belted her on the back and it's so scary. And she was just gagging and learning. And so, yeah, I just want everyone listening to know that there is a difference. And we did a lot of research after we learned this. We watched different videos and we really wanted to understand what the difference was. So I highly recommend looking up the difference and getting really familiar for yourself uh, because there is a difference and they are learning. Like even now, like today, she loves broccoli and she had some and she was, you know, gagging, but I was right there with her and I knew, I knew that she was just gagging like it wasn't a choke. So I really want to just reiterate that it's really important that we know. And coming back to how much they should eat, I read one book that said, look at the size of their palm. You know, they say the size of their tummy, similar size to their palm, like how much they can fit in. Because this was something that I was really confused about. And I want to talk to you about this. Like how much food do we give them? Do we give breakfast, lunch, dinner, morning tea and afternoon tea? Like surely, you know, every baby is different. We know this and they have little teeny tiny cute stomachs. But how do we know? Yes, they'll turn away. We, from day one, have used baby sign language with Bambi. And one of the most helpful signs, if you just do one sign, it's the more sign. And this is where you can just Google it. Google baby sign language, more sign. And it's like you put your two fingers together. And so we did this more sign with her from day one. And we always would say more, more to her. And so she now does it. Anytime she wants more food, she does it. And I'll ask her, I'll say, would you like some more? And sometimes she just doesn't sign back to me. And then we have an all done sign, like a finish, finish sign. So that's something that you guys could do. But is there a general rule when it comes to babies or is every single baby different? Like how much should we be feeding them? Do we do morning tea? Do we do afternoon tea? What are your thoughts? I think this is my number one asked question. Um, and I think the reason is that if you look up any like feeding guideline, you will get a different answer every time. And so I can understand why it's so confusing. I have very general guidelines because I know people like guidelines, even though I try and steer away from things like that. But as a very general rule, When you're first starting out solids, you would start on one meal a day. It doesn't matter what time you do. Whatever time suits you, there's no right time. For people that like to know a time, I think that a a good time for that age is generally after that first morning nap because you tend to have quite a big awake window then and they're quite happy and not overtired. And so that can be a really good window, but it doesn't have to be the window. For example, I use that window with my first two kids with my third it didn't work because that was school drop-off time and I can't 
do a meal then, you know. So ours was in the afternoon and that's what worked for me. So that's why I try and steer away from these strict rules. But, yeah, one meal a day and then generally somewhere between seven and nine months they'll probably move to two meals a day. Again, it doesn't matter what time. And then somewhere between nine and 12 months they'll move to three meals a day. And the aim is that by 12 months they're eating family meals and then you can incorporate some snacks. I'm not saying that you can't give snacks before then, like, you know, if you're at the park and they want some whatever, you might want to give them a little bit of fruit or something. That's absolutely fine. But they don't need snacks before 12 months, so you don't need to incorporate them with every day. So that's sort of a bit of a general rule, but some babies will move up to three meals really quick and some babies won't even get the hang of solids until nine, ten months. And so they might be on one meal for ages. I just wanted to say Bambi started day one on three meals and like she, and I'm, I was going to talk to you about this. She eats so much. She has always been an amazing eater from day one, three meals. She eats everything and then has a second plate. Like she loves her food and there is nothing that she hasn't liked. Like I thought mm, most kids might not like broccoli. So I put broccoli out, loves it. It's the first thing she picks up. She loves avocado. Even thought I grated some zucchini and lightly steamed it and now she can eat that. I thought, "Mm, what kid likes zucchini? She loves it. So she has always been an amazing eater and it's only just now I've started offering like a banana for a morning tea snack or some blueberries or a cup of homemade nut milk or something like that. But yeah, it's really interesting. And and it comes back to as well, every baby is so different. And you're saying, you know, start with one meal, but at seven months, just over seven months, we started her on three. And let me just say like the first meal was like some avocado. That was like her, her breakfast. And the next one might've been a little bit of sweet potato. And then dinner might've been a little bit of pumpkin, whatever. That was her meals, but she did that. And you know, every baby is so different. Yeah, well, that's less what I mean. They're, they're really rough guidelines because I know some people like to have a guideline, but there's no right or wrong and there's no official guideline <laughs> because they're all different. And so, again, it comes back to trusting your instincts and intuition with your own baby and looking at their own cues. The only thing I'll say is that I see a lot of people do go a bit too hard too fast And the only thing that you need to be wary of is that, like I've said a few times now, breast milk or formula needs to remain the priority. And so if you're finding that food is displacing their milk feeds, then you need to pull back on food because their main source of nutrients and calories at the moment should still be from their their milk feeds. I was just going to say, and with Bambi, that didn't slow down her milk at all. Like it was still the same for her, you know? And people get confused about how to balance milk and food. And so because the milk feeds are going to drop off to some degree as they get older, but the efficiency and the draining of the breast should remain the same. And so as generally speaking, as they drop naps, they tend to drop breast feeds or milk feeds, I should say. However, I feed on demand and my baby, I think, feeds more now in the day than he did as a newborn, you know, so it's like... They're all different again, like I said, but (laughs) trying to really trust that they 
yeah, are getting their milk feeds. And what a lot of people will do to ensure this is that they'll do a milk feed when they wake up from their naps or wake up from their sleep. So the milk feed comes first and the food comes second. And that way you can ensure that they're getting all their calories from their milk feed and then the food, you know, half an hour, an hour later, whenever you want to do it, will come secondary to that. The, some people get confused because they feed to sleep and so then it's like, but my baby has a long feed before sleep and they don't feed on wake up because they're full from that. And I say that's absolutely fine too. There's no right or wrong, but if you notice that those feed to sleep feeds just become more a comfort feed rather than an actual feed, then you're starting to replace food with, with the calories if they're not having like a proper drain in the breast type feed. So in terms of how much to offer them, you can start like you did with the little palm of your hand if you want. Some babies will eat nowhere near that amount and some babies will eat double that amount. There's no right or wrong. It's, again, learning to trust their own hunger cues and letting them trust when they're full and it's teaching them that skill that they can, they are in control of what they eat. If you feel like if they seem to want more, like they finish their meal, you know, quickly and they're, you know, still sort of seeming like they want more, my baby can't sign language, but, you know, he'll, you know, bang on the table and he'll sort of demand that he wants more in his own little way. Then if I have more of that food, then I'll definitely offer more. I'll offer something else if I have it. But sometimes I don't because I don't have any more food for him at that stage. And I'm like, well, that'll do you. <laughs> I can't keep doing this. The only thing to be wary of as well is if your baby's getting constipated. Constipation can be a sign of having too much fiber. and because breast milk doesn't have any fiber in it. And so their body's got to get used to what to do with all of that fiber. And so there's two different types of fiber, soluble and insoluble fiber. And whilst it's a really good thing, if they have too much of it, it can block them up. And so if you're noticing that they're getting constipated, it can be a sign that they're having too much food. And so if that is the culprit of the constipation, if you taper back the food and increase their milk feeds, then it should resolve itself pretty quickly. But constipation can be from an array of things, so it's not always that. But they're the only things to be wary of. Other than that, like I said, there's no right or wrong, so you can just keep offering the food if you've got it there and let them, you know, and they, they have their own way of telling you they've had enough. Like my baby likes to throw his food off the side of the high chair or windscreen wipe up the food, you know, all over the place or put it all over his head and that's kind of a sign that he's done or they start to whinge and want to get out of the chair. So looking for those cues for your own baby and learning your own little way of communicating with them is important. I love that. And your book goes into depth on constipation for anyone who is confused about that as well. So I love that you touched on that in the book, which is really important. And for me, as soon as Bambi wakes up, it's milk always first, booby first, and then she has her food later. So what are your top three favorite first foods is avocado one of them i'll say is it for plant-based or non-plant-based <laughs> let's do three for plant-based and three for non-plant-based oh top three okay well plant-based i love root vegetables are really beautiful so like things like squash pumpkin sweet potato sweet potato and then any vegetable, broccoli, zucchini, like you said, beautiful, nourishing, helpful of beautiful carbohydrates, fiber. The other one would probably be avocado, like you said. That was my 
birth my first two children's first food, beautiful, healthy fats, and just a really lovely, easy to digest food for most babies. Three is hard. Maybe chia seeds might be my third one because they are very nutrient dense, little power packed little foods, really a great source of complete protein, which is important for plant based. Um, they are full of omega 3 fatty acids. They great to source of soluble fiber so they draw water into the bowel and they can actually really help with constipation because they'll help move things along and so they're a really beautiful food and then you can obviously you know pimp them up a little bit and you know make the chia seed pudding with coconut milk and add any goodies that you want to add into there some hemp seeds or some spirulina or any fruits or things like that that you want to add so that would probably be my top three maybe (laughs) but there's so many beautiful healthy nourishing foods out there it's like I could go on forever about them (laughs) non-plant-based would probably I guess because baby's highest requirement at this age is iron they have enough iron stores from in utero until around six months and so that's again why one of the reasons that they say around that six month mark and different things will impact that, like, you know, if you did delay core clamping or the way that you eat and your own iron stores and things like that will impact how much iron your baby has. But I guess my top three foods to start with, I would still say avocado because I think it's a beautiful nourishing food. And if you follow me, you probably notice I really love liver because liver is a very nutrient-dense food, high source of iron that there is, also high in lots of other amazing nutrients as well. And I also really love bone marrow. It's a really underrated food, really high fat, has iron in it, easy to mix into things, add onto things. It's really beautiful, nutrient-dense. Oh, and I love bone broth as well. Really great for lining the gut and helping the foods to digest and building their collagen and every, yeah, could go on about that for ages too, but <laughs> I won't bore you. <laughs> but they would be my top ones. Awesome. And your book is full of both plant-based and not plant-based recipes. So you cover both camps, which is really awesome. Talk to me about supplements. If your baby is eating a very healthy, well-balanced diet, they're getting the healthy fats, the healthy carbs, the protein, they're getting fiber. Talk to me about whether you think they actually need supplements and then what age and what supplements would you recommend? Well, for a plant-based baby, I'm guessing you mean, or for any baby. Well, for any baby. I think, I guess I should state this, that I think that if you are going to go down the path of choosing to raise your baby plant-based, that I really think that you should have a practitioner that you trust who you can discuss these things with because, again, like it sounds like you have an incredible diet and you're really on top of all these beautiful nutrient-dense foods. But then I'm sure you've seen many people who choose to go plant-based who do not eat the same way as you and may think that they have a nutrient-dense diet but do not. And so that's why I think individualizing and having your own consult with someone that you trust in the space is really important and for them to identify, you know, because a lot of things you might need a blood test for to see if you need an iron supplement, you wouldn't just take an iron supplement just because, for example, 
So things like that, I think it's really important. And if you're going to raise your baby that way to take them along for the ride because you're obviously hopefully going to eat the same things and have a similar diet in the long run. So in terms of supplements for plant-based, I guess there's a few important ones. Do you supplement Bambi with anything before I start? Just a plant-based omega-3 algae oil. And she has spirulina, which is incredibly high in iron. So I put some spirulina in her smoothies. Yeah, perfect. That's why I guess in my book, we have spirulina quite a lot through it as well, because it is a beautiful, very nutritious food. The biggest one, like you said, um, the omega-3s are really important because ALA, you know, and EPA is found in in plant-based foods, but it doesn't convert very well at all to DHA and DHA is really important and only found in animal products and algae and so the type of algae that it's found in isn't really an edible source and so you would supplement with the marine-based algae like you mentioned and so you would do this for a baby when they started solids supplement them with a marine-based algae because there's enough through the breast milk otherwise until then especially if you're supplementing the other one is B12. I'm not sure if you've looked into that one very much, but you've chosen not to supplement with that one for you guys. I take it myself. And so they're definitely, I'm taking it and I'm still breastfeeding. And it is something that I have thought about and researched. However, I was maybe going to wait till she was a little bit older. Yeah. And so B12 if your stores are okay through the breast milk, that's why, you know, it's so amazing. You've got that great backup whilst we start on food. B12, the, the biggest food that's found in plant-based would be nori sheets and they're amazing and you can give them to baby from six months. A really nice way you can give them is that you can just blend them up, like buy the actual sushi nori sheets because they're unsalted and they don't have any oils on them and just blend them up. Um, I put mine in the Thermomix um, on like a really fast run and then make little sprinkles with them and then you can coat finger foods in them or you can add them to your puree so that's a really beautiful way of getting some b12 and also iodine into their diet you can also get some b12 through tempeh fermented soybean but that is a allergen and so just be mindful of that when you're introducing tempeh but I probably would recommend a B12 for plant-based babies because it is really hard to get enough of through the diet. And so you can, do you take a methylated cobalamin B12? Yes. And a spray. So yeah, I take that every morning and I get my levels tested often to make sure that I'm all good as well. Yeah, perfect. And obviously we don't want to test babies if we don't need to and if they're not symptomatic of anything because that would be quite traumatic. But the good thing is that you can't really overdo the B12 supplement too much. And so it's quite a safe one to give, even if you're on the fence of do they need it or do they not. So for a plant-based, they would be my main ones because those are really hard to get from non-animal products, just those two. So there's lots of other nutrients that babies need a lot of, but you can get them from plant-based foods. So things like iron you can get from plant-based foods, calcium you can get from plant-based foods, you can get choline from plant-based foods. The other one to be conscious of is protein because I'm sure you're aware of this and it sounds like you're all over it, but mixing up the protein if you're not. There are certain complete protein sources like hemp seeds and chia seeds and quinoa and buckwheat and amaranth, but beans and things like that are amazing, but you need to have sort of a variety through the day to ensure that you're getting all those different amino acids that make up a complete protein. And so 
for babies, sometimes that can be a bit tricky if they're only having one meal a day. And so just being up and aware of complete protein sources for them can be important as well. Because say, for example, if they're only having a little bit of avocado a day or sweet potato a day, they're not getting any protein. Or if you're just giving them beans, for example, and nothing else through the day, then they're not having complete sources of protein. And so they are getting some through the breast milk. So you've always got that backup, but you know, it's more important once that the milk feeds start to wean off that these things become more at the forefront of your mind. So don't freak out <laughs> for anyone listening who isn't up to that yet, but it's just something to be really mindful of that. That's why, and there's so much to go through that it's good to talk to a practitioner about it so that you can go through everything in detail and let them know what you are eating, whether that's appropriate for a baby or not as well. And what I do is I make sure now that she's over one, that every meal has healthy fats, healthy carbs, and healthy protein. And if you are unsure, there's a great app you can use called Chronometer, where you can actually track for a week everything that your baby is eating. And you can see, are they getting enough protein? Are they getting enough healthy fats? Are they getting enough? And so if you are really confused and you're a bit lost and you're unsure, I would highly recommend doing that. And I did this when I first went plant-based. I got the app I tracked everything and I'm meeting all of my nutritional needs and I have the data to show. And that's something that you can do as well. If you are a little bit confused or not sure how much to give, definitely do that. And so, yeah, the only supplement that we're currently giving Bambi is the omega-3 algae oil. And yeah, what about someone who's not plant-based? What would you suggest supplement-wise? Yeah. So I still recommend an omega-3 DHA for most babies because, to be honest, most babies don't eat enough of foods containing DHA, you know, and, and the big one from that is, is really high-quality fish, wild-caught salmon, etc. which if anyone here is listening in Australia is actually very hard to access in Australia. I order mine online, but I know that a lot of people can't access wild-caught salmon here. And so we supplement with cod liver oil, which is the non-plant-based equivalent DHA. And I would recommend that from when you start solids. And I still supplement myself, my husband and my children with that. We all have that every day because we don't. Per- I don't think we personally would meet the, the criteria to eat enough seafood. I'm just not a lover of it, to be honest. I have to force myself to eat it. The other things to be aware of, vitamin D3 is something to be aware of. That in a lot of countries that's recommended to supplement with from birth so in the u.s in canada in a lot of europe babies will be supplemented from birth with vitamin d3 in australia that's not the recommendation yet but it's it looks like it might be starting to lean that way because even though we have so much sunshine we're very slip slop slap happy which is great for skin cancer (laughs) but not so great for the absorption of vitamin d so I would just recommend getting tested if you're unsure of your levels, you as the mother, if you're breastfeeding, if you're formula feeding, the formula is generally enriched with vitamin D3 anyway. And if your levels are okay, then generally speaking, your baby's levels will be okay as well. But you can supplement yourself if you are sort of on the lower teeter and that will pass through to your baby through the breast milk. But if you're someone who also doesn't really ever get out in the sun lives in a cooler climate, is very, very sun conscious and always covering your baby up 
always wearing sunscreen, then a vitamin D supplement could be a good option for you. I'm not that way inclined in my vitamin D is through the roof and so that's not something that personally we feel the need to supplement with. The other thing, some babies may need a calcium supplement if they have a calcium protein intolerance and they're not feeding other calcium-rich sources of foods, which is quite easy to do for a baby, but calcium will be met through breast milk and formula until they're weaned anyway, so there's nothing to worry about there. But once they are weaned, unfortunately, the sources of calcium-rich foods tend to be foods that toddlers don't tend to like. And so that's just something to be mindful of. Their foods like sardines with bones in them, mackerel with bones in them, tahini, cheesies are really high as well though. Like you can access it, but just again, having a chat to someone if you are wondering if your baby may not be meeting the needs and they may need some kind of fortification. But that's all that I would, I don't think... The other one a lot of people ask me about is probiotics. I get asked about them all the time and if I think that babies need probiotics. And for some babies, probiotics can be really... I don't know if you've ever used them for Bambi, the probiotic. Not for Bambi, no. But, you know, I have a friend who her baby was cesarean born and he's younger than Bambi and he's had lots and lots of rounds of antibiotics. So in that case, then that's when a probiotic would be helpful. Yeah, they have their place. So for sure, a baby born by a cesarean could do with a round of probiotics, even just as a baby. Again, antibiotics, every time you have them doing a round of probiotics, there's research for babies with colic having probiotics, babies with constipation, a certain probiotic can help. Again, not all probiotics are made equally. And again, that's why you should have a chat to somebody who's experienced in the space because the certain strains is really helpful and certain strains can be actually not so helpful and do the opposite effect. Eczema is another big one as well that probiotics can help with. However, in the general speaking, if your baby doesn't have a specific need for a probiotic, then I think fermented foods are incredible to add to any baby's diet. And so incorporating foods that are fermented, generally speaking, will be more beneficial and have more beneficial bacteria. And so foods like sauerkraut, tempeh that we talked about before, you've also got like beetroot kvass is a really good one as well. I don't know if you've ever used that. And then if you are going to go down the non-plant-based, you can do things like dairy milk kefir, goat's milk kefir, or you can do coconut kefir if you are plant-based as well. And so they're all beautiful probiotic-rich foods that you can add to your baby's diet that's really going to help their microbiome and help them to digest foods better as well. Yeah, Bambi loves sauerkraut. So we just give her a little bit of that and she loves it. Talk to me about allergens. Anyone can look up the top allergen foods. You know, there's soy, there's dairy, there's corn, there's nuts. Am I missing any? I think corn's one, but you've got nine, nine top allergens. Peanuts, tree nuts, sesame, uh, egg, shellfish, fish, soy, dairy, and wheat. Okay. So there is nine top allergens, right? Yes. Now, I have read that if you don't have an issue with any of these allergens yourself and your baby is very healthy, they were vaginally born healthy, there's no colic, they are thriving, that you might not necessarily have to introduce allergen foods. And your book talks about this and goes in depth about it. But can you just share a little bit about your thoughts on that? Do you think we need to introduce all of them? 
And I know you've got different ages for each of them, but do you think we really need to do it if our baby is healthy and was vaginally born and is thriving and you don't have any symptoms of any allergies yourself? I haven't personally read that research to be able to comment on what you're discussing, but there was a really big trial done in 2015, I think, called the LEAP trial, which studied peanut allergies in children. It was the biggest allergy trial that we've had done yet. Basically, the research showed that the earlier introduction to those foods and the more frequent exposure to those foods dramatically reduced the risk of developing an allergy to those foods and that not giving those foods increased the risk of developing an allergy later in life. And so because back when I had my son Flynn, who was born in the same year, I think, as that trial, the recommendations used to be to start allergens at age five. Now it's to introduce them all by 12 months. So it's changed a lot even just since I've been a mum. And I couldn't imagine not giving those foods till five. It just seems like they're in a lot of foods, you know. So, And that was specifically the peanuts and eggs that they were talking about. Anyway, so now they've done a complete back turn and they're recommending that you introduce all of the top allergens by 12 months of age and that the more frequent exposure. Now there's no real guideline on what is considered frequent exposure yet, but they've put out a really rough guide saying around the two-week mark if you can keep it in their diet every at least every two weeks, which I think is a bit unachievable for all of the allergens. But um, <laughs> It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. So... I just tell people just do what you can and just trying to keep them in rotation in the diet and just being mindful to incorporate peanuts every now and then or eggs, etc. And I do get a lot of questions from plant-based parents and caregivers who maybe don't feel comfortable giving those foods because they don't eat them themselves. Um, It's absolutely a personal choice. I can only comment on what the research has shown. And if you look at, there's a website, a really good one in Australia called NIP. NIP, NIP Allergies in the Bub, B-U-B. It's a really comprehensive website. There's lots of evidence-based information in there. My book goes into them in age guides, like you said, but the age guides, basically that the ASCIA, so the Allergy Guidelines of Australia, recommend all allergens be introduced by 12 months. My book's about digesting foods well and incorporating them in a slower-paced way that still meets the guidelines by 12 months but not giving all of them at six months. Like I still haven't given my baby wheat, for example, because he's still learning to digest pseudograins and lentils and things like that. I don't think his digestive system would cope with wheat very well just yet. And so that's in my guideline, you'll see that even though wheat's an allergen, it's sort of the last one that I would introduce personally. And so things like cow's milk, you know, I would start with ghee and butter and work my way up in terms of digestibility. We don't have to introduce actual pasteurized cow's milk if you don't want, but, you know, just doing those better forms of dairy, like fermented dairies, like kefirs and things like that, that are easier to digest. And it's completely up to you if you choose to or not. I guess the only word of caution I often like to give uh, parents who are plant-based is that your child may grow up and not want to be plant-based. And so, you know, do you want to run the risk of them being allergic to certain foods? That's just something that that you'll have to, you know, work out between yourselves. The other thing is that what if they're exposed to a food at a party or something like that, which they probably will be, when they pick up some piece of cake that has egg in it or whatever and, you know, you 
I turned around it recently and my baby who was six months old had a whole cheesecake in his hand and was eating the whole thing. So it happens to me have three kids. <laughs> so he was exposed to about 10 allergies at once, I think. <laughs> but they are going to probably be exposed to these things at some stage. And so whether you want to do it in a more controlled environment and at least just do the three exposures and then maybe you will choose not to keep it in their diet if that's your choice. But you might feel comfortable doing the three exposures or getting a caregiver who is not plant-based, for example, to do the three exposures if that makes you feel more comfortable. Or choosing the ones that you might want to test, like you might want to test peanuts because, well, I'm not sure if you've done peanuts anyway because you're plant. That's, are you still doing any of the allergens or just not the plant-based ones? Uh, haven't done any of the non-plant-based ones. Non-plant-based, yeah. So some people might feel comfortable with eggs, for example, but not feel comfortable with dairy or vice versa or you know it doesn't mean you have to test all of them but you might choose to test some of them that you feel comfortable with so hopefully that answers your question but have a look at that website it's really really comprehensive yes i love that and we'll link to that in the show notes as well as your amazing book and speaking of books if you had a magic wand and could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world what book would you choose and this could be on any topic oh gosh (laughs) that's a loaded question (laughs) i don't know you've put me on the spot can i say my own book (laughs) i wrote it because i felt like that book was necessary (laughs) so i feel like it, it would be required but yeah i don't know loaded question it is that's all good that's all good Luca, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for sharing everything with us. If I didn't have to go and do food and bedtime and booby and bath and all of that, I know that we could chat for a very long time. So thank you so much for all of your wisdom, for your incredible work that you're doing. Thank you for being here and for your time, even though you have three little kids. So thank you so much for being here and for sharing with us today. I'm so grateful. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was an honor. It was really nice to meet you online, (laughs) hopefully one day in person. Yes, let's make it happen. Looks a bit warmer where you are, so I'll head up there. (laughs) Yes, come anytime, anytime, my love. (laughs) It was really nice to speak to you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, my darling. I hope you got so much out of this episode and I hope if you were confused like I was at the start that this has eased your mind and just remember that you know best for your babe. You always know best for your babe. So tune in, go within and ask yourself because you always know what is right for you and your babe. I also found it really interesting that she mentioned the same supplements for both plant-based babies and non-plant-based, which is very interesting. Just a bit of food for thought. Now, I loved this conversation and I hope you did. And if you did, please subscribe to the show and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that all of my episodes will pop up in your feed so that you don't have to go searching for a new episode. And please come and connect with me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me what you got from this episode. I absolutely love connecting with you and I love hearing from you. Now, before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest and the happiest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock. 
Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.